One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to YDHTY, the home for the politically homeless and the podcast for those of you who like your politics and colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please share it with one friend you think might like it too. This podcast grows by word of mouth. You can also find additional commentary on this episode and other issues of the day by signing up for my email list at ydhty.com slash news. Now, we are winding down this season of YDHTY as we head for a short summer break, and we've been on quite a journey since the war in Ukraine started. We've explored the role of currency, food systems, and commodities markets in politics at home and abroad, and I thought it fitting to recap all that we've learned with the guy who sent us down this rabbit hole to begin with. None other than everybody's favorite return guest, Ben Studebaker. Now, longtime listeners will know Ben from the numerous past episodes we've done together. Most recently, the March 10th episode, where Ben explained how Russia's invasion of Ukraine makes sense once you understand how the politics of the country works. And if you haven't heard that, strongly recommend going back and giving it a listen. I wanted to get Ben's take on everything we've learned and see if history offers us a precedent for how things might end and how we might get out of this predicament. And interestingly enough, Ben brings up a reform idea that I discussed in an earlier episode, which has me feeling rather validated. I will be back at the end to discuss this and offer some additional final thoughts. The, the listeners and myself, we've been kind of cutting our way through the jungle since the last conversation you and I had on the war in Ukraine. I've sometimes felt like I've been drinking ayahuasca, really, like after some of the subject matter I've, I've jumped into. It's exhausting and mind-blowing, but super interesting. And I'll, I'll, I'll kick it off this way. You know, when, when you and I talk, the biggest thing I took away from our conversation is that what we are seeing with the war in Ukraine was a political actor acting logically. And it, one of the reasons I started this podcast is because I saw that the polarization in American political discourse was the result of people acting logically with the incentives they were set forward. So we have this first past the post voting system encourages polarization, encourages division, and it's reached and it just reached a fever pitch uh, in the run up to the Trump era. But really, we could probably talk like 2008 until now. Uh, for Russia's sake, as you you help me understand, it, Putin is acting logically. So Putin maintains his power by a mix of intimidation and patronage to military and economic elites. Ukraine posed a threat to that with its democratizing, with its moving closer to the West. And as a result, Putin acted logically. Putin invaded Ukraine. Putin pushed the threat down. And the first question I'll, I'll throw out to you here, which wasn't on the, the prep sheet I sent over to you, is do you have any idea why this is all happening right now? Because I, I kind of do, but I'm, I'm interested in your take. Well, I think there's been a lot of long-term economic change that has been happening at a slow pace, but has steadily eroded a lot of the foundations for how we as a world all work together. Uh, if we go back to, say, the installation of Bretton Woods after World War II, that system began to be disassembled explicitly in the 70s. And it's been slowly and steadily disassembled. And nothing has come in to replace it. It's just been slowly taken apart through uh, individual acts from different states, often in response to what other states have done, through a logic that none of the states 
apart from maybe the states which acted at the very beginning, maybe, for instance, President Nixon in 1971 with the Nixon shock, that was a decision, a decision that didn't have to be taken. But after those initial decisions, the logic of dismantling Bretton Woods began to increasingly dictate what states do, especially the smaller states. The United States still theoretically has leverage, but as you described, the polarization and the infighting in the United States makes it difficult for it to act. And because the United States is not able to act, that unleashes a logic of powerlessness in this system, because the system depends on the United States' capacity to act. So when the United States doesn't act, everybody is pushed around by its internal logic. And that has gradually subjected populations to more stress. And as populations are subjected to more stress, states have to look for political solutions to that stress. And that often involves getting populations involved in other kinds of conflicts over other kinds of things and focusing on other issues. So if we, if we kind of take that and, and project it onto the real world, you know, we have in, in the case in the U S we have debates over guns, debates over abortion. These are, are wedge issues that really don't have any seeming uh, resolution uh, between sides. If we look at Russia, it's the enemies in Ukraine. Uh, one one question I want to jump back to, and first to, to bring the listener up to speed too, for those of you who might not be aware, you know, Bretton Woods was an agreement made just in the aftermath of World War II. It established the U.S. as the central reserve currency for the world. So 44 nations agreed to peg their currency to the U.S. dollar, which in turn was pegged to the value of gold. And uh, Nixon changed that, uh, let the dollar float and changed the convertibility to gold and uh, it gave us the, the system we have now. Um, one thing you said, I, I want to jump into this, is you mentioned Nixon didn't have to make that decision. So what, what were his other options? At the beginning of the end of Bretton Woods, the United States, because it was the currency that all the European currencies were indexed to, it was on the United States to maintain a relatively balanced budget. So if you look at U.S. budgets in the 50s and 60s, they are not dramatically all over the place. They're relatively even because Bretton Woods requires that the United States stay relatively even. So in the late 60s, the United States starts to spend on both the war on poverty, Lyndon Johnson's social programs, and the Vietnam War at the same time. That expenditure causes the United States to run a deficit that is larger than is compatible with Bretton Woods. So the United States then had an option. It could stop fighting the Vietnam War. It could pull back on that social spending. It could raise taxes. uh, Or it could dump the Bretton Woods system. And Richard Nixon decided that not to end the Vietnam War not to pull back on those social programs, not to raise taxes, and therefore the option is to dump the Bretton Woods system. And Nixon's logic is that Bretton Woods at this point only really benefited the Europeans, no longer benefited the United States, and that the Europeans could figure it out on their own. And that unleashed a chaotic process in Europe, which led ultimately to the creation of the euro. Yeah, so the... There's a lot to talk about there, but there's there's one interesting thing I want to hone in on here, which is that after that period of time, so after Nixon just decided to let the dollar float, that's when you start to see deficit spending in the form we know today. That's when you start to see the national debt start rising. And what I feel has been maybe exposed, especially in recent decades, is a weakness in democracy because any politician in their right mind who wants to get reelected is not going to go back and try and sell their voters on higher taxes or lower spending. If there is a method to take out debt at a very, very low interest rate and use that to fund high levels of government spending without increasing revenue, they're going to do that. And again, getting back to the logical actor argument I made at the beginning, the people in Congress who are continuously adding to our red ink are acting logically. There is no way out of this predicament unless I'm missing something. 
I think to some degree it was also a function of Nixon. I think Nixon is the figure in the second half of the 20th century who has the most personal autonomy because Nixon is the one who did not have to do that. Uh, And so certain features of Nixon's life, I think, play into it. Nixon felt that in 1960 he had been robbed, uh, that the political system was to some degree kind of out to get him. And so he was willing to violate certain norms that perhaps other leaders would not have been willing to violate to improve his odds of being reelected. And we see that with Watergate. We see that with uh, the enormous amount of spending that Nixon set out to do in 1972 to ensure that the economy would grow so that he would be reelected. And this in the literature is called politicized Keynesianism or a political business cycle in the 70s, the tendency of elected governments to goose the economy in election years. Now, that's a tendency across the board. It's not just Nixon. But Nixon did it to an enormous degree. He kicked the growth rate way, way up in 1972. And that contributed to the inflation of 1973. Uh, It's not the only factor that contributed to the inflation of 1973. We also get the OPEC embargo that year. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with the Arab response to the U.S. intervention in the Yom Kippur War. But Nixon's decision to spend because Nixon feared losing that 1972 election uh, because of his his paranoid tendencies is certainly part of the story. That and that it's funny if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, it always seems to come back to Nixon. Nixon seems to be the hinge in the post World War II order where all things pivot. You know, and 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 his and there are a couple of different decisions he made that we can get into as well. I mean, the the decision to let the dollar floats a, a large one. Uh, I think his courting of disaffected Southern Democrats via his law and order message is another one that really contributed to polarization. Uh, which again, we may get into if we don't. There's an episode from about a year ago today, or a year ago in June, that talks about that. Um, I want to jump ahead a little bit because. One of the things we discussed in an episode not too long ago with Carrie King, and again, if you're listening to this for the first time, you can go back and find it. It's a it's a couple weeks ago. But he studies energy systems and how they affect the economy. And he actually compiled data going all the way back to 1300. So one of the interesting things about the UK is they have some really good economic data going back hundreds and hundreds of years. And what he found is when the Industrial Revolution started, or at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, when we began building our economies around fossil fuels, the price of food and energy relative to income, or the amount of our income that we spend on food and energy, declined. And it kept going down. And when we made the transition from coal to petroleum, that amplified the effects of it. Uh, And that effect kept going and kept going until the year 2000. And then things started going up again. So now we're in a state where, again, relative to income, cost of food and energy have continuously increased. And I think as I look at the last 20 years, what I see is a global economy that has stalled out in terms of its ability to produce or its ability to increase productivity. At this point, we've really just started shuffling money around. You know, so our dollars go over to China, which in turn go back into U.S. dollars, which in turn are translated into debt, which we use to buy more things. And, you know, we've got this we've got this scenario where global economies is no longer increasing productivity. It's effectively just shuttling money around. And so we've come to this point now where if you work in a capital intensive industry, in the United States that thrives on debt. So if you're in tech, if you're in life sciences, if you're in finance, you've done very well. And if you live in one of the cities that has one of those industries or more as a center of their economy, you have done very well. If you haven't, what you've effectively seen is the value of your labor continuously decrease and your ability to get by continuously to to decrease. And, And I feel like this is really why we are where we are. I feel like it starts with Nixon. Nixon lets the dollar float. We get into this very politically advantageous death spiral where we continue to paper over 
the uh, the shortcomings of the economy rather than fix them. And so we end up in this environment where the U.S. is politically in in probably the most dire straits it's ever been in. Yeah. So in terms of mechanically how that works, once you dump the Bretton Woods system and the United States is is then committed to spending large amounts of money, if the United States is going to be running deficits, then that means that the United States has to import from other countries so that when the United States is sending uh, dollars out, people are buying stuff, getting, getting stuff. Uh, when the United States is, is asking for these dollars back. So the way it works is that other countries uh, buy uh, American debt or acquire American dollars, and in return, uh, Americans buy goods from those countries so that those dollars can be sent back out. That's how the current account evolves. So the really large debts begin to show up in the 80s. In the 70s, large debts are, are uh, there are large deficits relative to the 50s and 60s, but even larger deficits occur in the 80s under Reagan. And as that happens, you get this enormous amount of imports. And that helps to develop a lot of other countries' economies, like Japan, and then eventually China. One of the debates in the 90s, when the United States was running the, trying to run a surplus under Bill Clinton, is what effect this would have on the trade relationships with other countries, and how it would undermine some of the uh, growth patterns. And so eliminating the budget surplus that was acquired in the 90s was kind of important to allow countries like China to continue to grow. Mm. And so uh, once we get into some of the crises of the last 20 years, the dot-com bust in 2008, having the United States spend a bunch of money in response to those crises, that enables uh, this system of imports to continue to develop. Now, as we've tried to go off of oil and coal we have been increasingly buying electronics that require lithium and other kinds of, of metals that are increasingly mined in China. They're imported, and that reduces our ability to lower the cost of food and energy with uh, our own energy technology. Because although we may be coming up with a lot of energy technology in the United States, a lot of the materials that we need for, for batteries are coming from abroad. So first off, before I, I add my comment, I don't know if you can hear what sounds like a chainsaw going off in the distance, but it's like without fail, without fail. When I record, these guys show up. Now, secondly, I just to kind of paint a picture for the listener, I, we don't have, this is Boston. We don't have a ton of property. We don't have like a big yard. So there's only so much yard work to be done. But you would think... You would think I live in an untamed wilderness with the amount of like lawn-related power tools going off in my vicinity at any one point in time. So that out of the way, yeah, you know, one of the one of the interesting conclusions I came to in these conversations was the fact that if the global economy gr- is to grow, one of two things need to happen: the dollar needs to rise in value, which disadvantages manufacturing, or the U.S. needs to take on debt, which disadvantages the saver effectively. And, and, and kind of both of those things, like almost like a worst of both worlds mix has been happening. Uh, you talked a little bit about China. You talked a little bit about lithium. It brings me to another point, which we haven't discussed on this podcast yet, which, but has been really interesting to me, which is if you look back at the pre-war era of the United States, we issued a lot of debt to a lot of nations in, in Latin America. And we engaged in, in what was called gunboat diplomacy when those debts went bad. And we used that to acquire land. We used that to acquire favorable trading agreements. We really used that to, uh, for lack of a better phrasing, subjugate some nations uh, under, under the debt load we had given them. When I look at China's behavior, you know, they have a lot of rare earth minerals, but they also seem to be engaging in a similar uh, strategy with a lot of countries, specifically in Africa, that have these materials as well. Do you, do you see that happening? Is that something you, 
you see as having an impact as well on things? Yeah, it, to talk briefly about the pre-World War II era, one of the things that's interesting about that era is that the United States, as early as World War I, was lending a lot of money out to a lot of U.S. dollars out to European countries. Uh, and in the 20s and 30s, there was kind of a mix of a dollar-pound system with tensions in that system about whether it was going to be, as it was increasingly, a dollar system or a pound system. Um, and that was a kind of unraveling of a, of a system that Britain had created around the pound that because Britain was no longer able to maintain the pound's value, in large part because of the enormous destruction of wealth that World War I visited upon European countries, uh, that had an effect of creating a situation where the dollar could come in and was dragged in. And so long before we intervened in World War I militarily, we were intervening economically because we had become the lender and we were replacing the, uh, the British pound as the currency that everybody wanted to have. A gradual process, not all at once, not all in World War I, but over the course of the 20s and 30s, there was this displacement. Uh, as far as China goes, part of the trouble now is that if China is to continue to grow, it needs to increase the purchasing power of Chinese workers. And that means increasing Chinese consumption. And if that is to happen, then China cannot be this export-oriented country to the degree that it has been. The Chinese economic strategy has been to constantly create a favorable environment for companies to set up uh, at the cost of suppressing to a large degree the ability of the Chinese worker to buy anything. And that's reached a, a point where it's now increasingly difficult for China to make further investments into its supply side that generate any real growth. And so a lot of the trouble in China in recent years has been infrastructure spending that doesn't actually accomplish anything in terms of growing the economy. So in the United States, it's hard to build anything. In China, you can build lots of things that nobody needs or that mm -hmm. uh, don't provide any value and that are just kind of wastes of materials. And this is the whole, you know, the crisis with Evergrande and, and these questions about how much of the Chinese economy, how much of Chinese growth is this fluff growth, uh, which even uh, ch the Chinese uh, Communist Party, even party officials are discussing. Even in party journals, there is some discussion of this problem at this point. Xi Jinping has talked about this issue with this kind of fluffy economy. But the question then is, can China affect a transition to a consumer economy? Uh, Michael Pettis is a really interesting guy who's, who's done some excellent work on this transition that is necessary in China. Uh, just as the United States needs to change the way its economy works to restabilize itself, so does China. And a lot of the things that would help China restabilize would also help the United States restabilize. If the Chinese consumer was doing more work, that would alleviate the burden on the American consumer, and that would alleviate the burden on the U.S. current account. And so a lot of things that would allow American workers to increase their purchasing power or to stabilize their living standard would also help Chinese workers. The issue is that just as there's a set of domestic internal political incentives to keep things as they are here, a similar set of incentives exists in China because there's an elite in China that has become enormously wealthy off the current way of distributing the benefits of Chinese economic growth and transitioning to a consumer-oriented model has enormous costs for that elite. And in the near term, Chinese economic growth is going to slow regardless of whether or not China starts to make this transition. It's going to be a difficult transition for China either way. And that difficult transition is politically challenging for the government. And it's coming at a time when the COVID policy in China, the, the zero COVID policy, has already uh, really dented Chinese growth and affected the production of electronics, which we are all experiencing all over the world. It sounds like we have two large economies, two large countries that need to restructure their economy 
in ways that are politically and unpalatable. And if we go back to the United States as an example, the way we restructure our economy is we we either reduce our debt or reduce our spending, raise taxes or both. And I kind of don't see how we don't do both at this point in time. Uh, the the and then me and then reverse course and become less of a consumer oriented economy than we've been because one of the things we talked about in a couple of episodes over the last few weeks is how the u.s consumption patterns just need to change in order to accommodate a growing population in order to accommodate resource constraints and so on it sounds like in china it's almost the exact reverse problem where we have a production oriented economy that really needs to focus more on consumption. How does that threaten the elites though? How does increasing the Chinese consumer economy threaten the, the, the powerful in China? So to give the Chinese worker more purchasing power, the Chinese workers wages need to go up. The uh, amount that Chinese workers are taxed needs to fall. And so the uh, people who currently have the money that otherwise would go to Chinese workers' wages and which Chinese workers would otherwise keep from tax, uh, those people don't want to give up that money. Understood. Understood. And so getting back to the logical actor argument here, then, we know what it looks like in the United States, whereas we just keep on taking debt until we run into an embankment. Effectively, that's just where it seems we're headed. On China's side, it's an autocracy. We've already seen autocracies respond in one of two ways, which is either increasing coercion on the population. And we kind of already see that with some of the things uh, Xi Jinping is doing in China, or we we start a conflict someplace else. And we, 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 we see that sort of bubbling up with the United States over specifically Taiwan. Is that how you see this playing out? Or do you see China potentially taking another direction? Well, so I think that when we say that the same general policy, I think would benefit the Chinese worker, which would benefit the American worker at this stage. Uh, I think there is somebody who goes, so why, why can't there be some kind of sit down, some kind of discussion about how to reorganize you know, some kind of second second Bretton Woods settlement that includes China. Uh, after 2008, the president of France at that time, Nicolas Sarkozy, said, let's do a second Bretton Woods. Let's have a big international conference and reorganize this thing. It didn't really happen. There were some talks. Uh, Gordon Brown in the UK tried to spearhead a reorganization. Uh, but after things began to stabilize in 2009 and, and 2010, the energy for that went away. Uh, the only reason that we were able to do Bretton Woods in the first instance was the war. The war so thoroughly destabilized everything that without a conference about how to reorganize it, uh, with a quite extensive discussion involving economic intellectuals from both Britain and the United States, there would not have been, uh, it needed to be that level of disruption for there to be that kind of conversation. And if it's possible to kick things along rather than have a big, uh, potentially destabilizing sit-down conversation where you change a bunch of the rules in ways that can destabilize the economy and upset your entrenched elites, uh, it's unlikely that you're going to have that kind of negotiation. So while I think we would all benefit from that kind of negotiation, things would have to get really bad before we could have that kind of settlement. And of course, nobody wants to make things bad to make it possible to have a negotiation about how to make things not bad. That seems to be a self-defeating approach. Yeah. So because of this, the states get put in a position where they have to make unilateral decisions. But as we saw in the 20s and 30s, when Britain and the United States were both significant players, but they were not able to really cooperate to maintain one particular global economic framework you get this collapse of the international economic order in the 30s. The gold standard gets abandoned, and in the 30s, everybody kind of goes their own way, throws up the tariffs, throws up the economic walls, and tries to develop on their own. And so I think if you're, we're not able to 
have some kind of negotiation where we construct a new economic settlement, eventually there will be some kind of moment where everybody throws up the walls. Mm, and we, we kind of see that happening now, or at least little traces of it. And to throw out a couple of examples, obviously we had the, the trade war uh, during the Trump era. That was the most obvious example. Uh, but we also have, uh, for example, China and other countries seeking alternative modes of payment aside from USD. It seems like those are all fairly nascent, like they don't necessarily pose a threat, but they do signify an abandon, abandonment of the uh, of the the global world order as we know it. And I and I think to, to jump back to the United States, I'm glad you brought up the 30s, because as I'm looking at this, what what I what I see and kind of what I've come to understand of governments and of forms of government is we always tend to talk about democracy as almost like a divinely inspired system in a way. So if you look at monarchy, right, we talked about monarchy when, when, when the monarchy was all the rage, there was the divine right of Kings. God had ordained this person to rule and everybody accepted that we have transitioned to one where God has ordained all of us with self-governance. And so there is that same spiritual element to the way we look at democracy. But when you break it down, it's really uh, about maintaining order and it's really about maintaining negotiations between those who have and those who don't. And I, 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 I think we've talked before on prior episodes about how during the 30s, there was a huge renegotiation between elites in the United States and workers. And that led to a rebalancing and a redistribution of income that ultimately paved the way, what or paved the way for the post-World War II America we know. On China's side, should we expect them to react in the same way autocracies reacted back then? So should we expect them to go to, to become more aggressive? Or is that too simplistic, do you think? I don't know about that. China right now it seems to be trying to kick this thing along. So, for instance, the gunboat diplomacy in Africa is about trying to kick along the capacity of China to export these electronics. Mm. The Chinese government, I think, knows that a confrontation over Taiwan at this juncture is not in China's interest because the chances of that being an embarrassing defeat for China are too high. The United States has too much military capacity on the sea and in the air for China to feel assured that if it sought that kind of confrontation, it would work out. And secondly, if there is that kind of confrontation and China starts it, that will force the Chinese economy to make a major transition because a war in the Pacific Ocean would completely disrupt all of the economic flows which Chinese growth currently depends on. So I think right now, People often paint China as the revisionist country, but I think China is, if anything, the country that is most committed to the existing economic system. It's the United States which has the biggest reasons to want to revise it at this juncture. Uh, but, and that's why I think we're seeing with Obama and the TPP and then Trump with the trade war attempts by the United States to revise the system, which China has been frustrated with. China's mm -hmm. been growing slowly under this, this framework. And while the capacity of China to continue growing slowly under this framework is waning, and China should try to get out in front of it and start transitioning to something else and have a productive conversation with the United States about how to transition to something else. The policy for China has been to try to ride this for as long as it'll go. And so China is, I think, very much on the back foot about a lot of these changes and transitions. And people often assume that because it's an authoritarian state that it has uh, the dynamism and the capacity to get out in front. But the problem that a lot of these big lumbering uh, authoritarian states have is that once they get rich, then additional power bases start to crop up outside the party and outside the leadership. And those economic power bases are potentially dangerous. And so a lot of what's going on in China is an attempt to manage the power of these rising factions 
within China, with Xi Jinping accusing the different factions of being corrupt as a means of weakening them. With particular people who are very wealthy or have acquired a lot of wealth and power recently in China being disappeared to send messages. Uh, There's that uh, that extremely wealthy uh, billionaire who just just kind of vanished. I, I can't quite remember his name a few years ago. This is the management that the Chinese Communist Party learned from the collapse of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union allowed too many external power bases to crop up. And the Chinese Communist Party's lesson that it took from that is to not allow those power bases to develop. But to have economic growth, you have to allow new people, new groups of people to get rich and to acquire power. And so growth and the maintenance of the political system are to some degree at odds, and it's been the goal of the Chinese Communist Party to somehow square that circle and maintain its power over the society as the economy grows. That's really interesting, because one of the things that I discovered as I was looking into the dollar state as a reserve currency, did if, if, if the listener wants to go back to a couple conversations that I had about it. One in particular is redback versus greenback. It's a couple uh, couple weeks ago or about a month ago or so. Uh, there's another one with Barry Eichengreen a little further back that talks about that. Um, both really interesting episodes. And um, I think one of the things I learned is that in order to have a reserve currency, there has to be two things that China lacks. One is free-flowing foreign direct investment or, or liberalized capital flows. So China has huge restrictions on capital, how capital can and can't be moved in and out of the country. Uh, and the second is democracy, oddly enough. There needs to be, there's a certain level of transparency that democracy provides that works to the advantage of currencies and debt markets. And it seems like at some point, China has to make the decision, do we box ourselves in with the current order, or do we allow more political liberalization in the interests of growing as a country? And I, I couldn't tell you which way they, which way they'll choose. And that's why I think ultimately, the Chinese strategy has never been to displace the dollar as the reserve currency. I think that is is sometimes talked about, but not in a very serious way. I don't think that's ultimately the Chinese objective, because to a large degree, the dollar as the reserve currency has served China very well. The fact that The United States has to continue to buy Chinese goods so that the dollar can continue to go all over the world and be in all of the uh, everybody's everybody's reserves. That has helped China develop its export sector. So to a large degree, the way that things have changed empowered China to grow very rapidly in the way that it has. But now China is reaching a point where it has to make certain decisions about where it wants to go from here. And if it doesn't make decisions which enable it to continue to grow, it's going to stagnate. And because its political legitimacy is heavily tied into its growth, that stagnation is a, is a threat. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing the, uh, an enormous deployment of force to enforce the COVID restrictions in China. And this deployment of force is a sign of weakness on the part of the Chinese state that it needs to be uh, out in the society with all of these people in these what you know very intimidating white outfits, you know, taping people's uh, truck doors shut, uh, walling people into buildings so that they don't violate quarantine. Uh, the implication is that a lot of people in China are not complying with the authorities unless there is a display of force, and that means that the ideology of the authorities is weak. And. I question for you on that. It, just like we have our our, crit, our debate on critical race theory or our debate on gun ownership or, or what have you, is that show of force real or is that for show? Is that zero COVID policy more political theater as a way to demonstrate the power of the government? Or is there some logic behind that that I'm not seeing? Well, states are stronger when they don't have to actually display their capacity to coerce. Because once the state actually uses its forces, then the forces are real to the people and there is a a sense of what their limits are. 
and the possibility of resistance comes in. When the state's capacities are kind of this, this uh, black, unknown thing, then the population can imagine them as, as astronomically vast, right? So for instance, conspiracy theories, which posit that the US government has enormous amounts of control are useful to the government because they imply that the government has all of this capacity and ability, this, this untapped, unseen capacity and ability to intervene. And that makes the government out to be very powerful and it makes resisting it seem completely futile and pointless, right? But if you actually get into a confrontation with the government, where the government actually has to deploy its forces to control the population, then you see what does the government actually have? Then you see who are the people who are actually deploying this force. Then you can ask, what do those people think? Could those people be turned against the regime? What kinds of beliefs do they have? Mm-hmm. Then you can start to interact with the power structure of the state. When it's all unknown, you can't really interact with all of that. It all feels very speculative. It feels like you're dealing with something frightening, terrifying, unknown. You know, it's, it's kind of like if you uh, were approaching a city and you could just see one skyscraper, one tower, and you could see nothing else, you know, like the, like the tower in Lord of the Rings, just by itself yeah. alone. It's very terrifying. It's, it's very intimidating. It seems like it was put there by a malign spirit, right? If you see all the buildings together and the skyscraper is just part of the whole city and you can see the whole city and how it's laid out, then the skyscraper isn't terrifying. It just seems like it's part of what's there. And the legitimacy of states to some degree works like this. Once the state has to actually take action to control people, then you can see things. And this is why, for instance, it's so important in China that Tiananmen Square not be discussed, that uh, Tiananmen Square be treated as something which just happened in the night almost by magic. Because once you engage with the actual repressive act, how it occurred, what took place, then these latent capacities of the Chinese state become real and therefore become something you can scrutinize, criticize, engage with. Uh, and so the fact that the Chinese state has had to take such, such overt measures to maintain its COVID policy is concerning for the legitimacy of that state. Uh, in the United States, what we observed is that uh, this kind of stuff was starting to happen. We saw, for instance, the trucker protests in Canada. And while we, of course, denounced the truckers, we responded to the trucker protests by easing off a lot of our COVID policies to prevent something similar from happening here. Because once you get those kinds of large-scale protests and the state is forced to make a response to those protests, then the capacities of the state become real and become something you can criticize. And so in Canada, the, the Trudeau government's direct confrontation with the trucker protests in many ways weakened the Trudeau government. There was a recent election in Ontario where the, the Conservative Party rode to an easy victory with low voter turnout. Uh, the Trudeau government is embattled in large part because it's been seen to be fighting directly with the population. Uh, it, similarly in China, the COVID policies have been pursued to the point where the government is seen to be fighting with the population. And so in this country, we preemptively dialed all of that back as soon as we start started to see in other countries that kind of overt conflict. I wanted I want to jump back to something you said earlier about uh, a Bretton Woods 2.0 because that's something I've talked about quite a bit uh, over the last year and I feel like if I'm to characterize where we are in the United States it's impoverished by money in a way where it, it sounds contradictory, but there's just so much money flowing through the system that it 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 and it, it it makes the value of labor almost worthless or makes it worth less than it was, you know, in years prior. And 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 I do think that this, if we look at the if we look at World War II, you know, that was the result of competitive economic or competitive uh, currency devaluations, or part of it was anyway. And and I feel like there's there's definitely a need to restructure the democratic order so we don't have one democracy holding the steering wheel. Uh, 
because ultimately it creates a situation where the engine of the global economy is the ability of that democracy to function and that the increasing amount of debt that we need in order to fund the global economy is actually resulting in destabilization and working against the stability of that dollar, that currency, and the stability of, of the country as a whole. Um, and and I, this is a really long-winded question, so I, trust me, there's a point I'm getting to here. You know, part two of that is that you know, when I look at China and when I look at their ambitions, and I compare that to, to World War II, they don't seem to be a Japan or a Germany. You know, they, Ch China seems very content to be China and be a very powerful China, but just be China, not necessarily expand into other regions or at least, you know, acquire territory. And so I wonder if there's an inflection point where the U.S. position gets weak enough and China's position gets just strong enough where they come together and lead an arrangement to restructure that without bloodshed and without economic hardship. Is that a feasibility or, or do you think that that's pie in the sky thinking? Well, I think the difficulty is there needs to be a decision to do quite significant and serious reforms. That decision needs to be taken by the American political system, which is heavily polarized, heavily divided, heavily locked up and the Chinese political system, which is heavily bureaucratic, heavily, uh, very, very slow-footed and rigid. Both of those systems, which individually have a very difficult time deciding to make these kinds of big economic changes. You know, in the case of China, it, it's got to be remembered that China was only able to make the transitions it made in the 80s, in large part because Deng Xiaoping in the 80s was willing to implement these reforms. Deng Xiaoping was almost purged out of the system multiple times by Mao Zedong, by the Gang of Four. Uh, it was, to a large degree, happenstance that there was leadership in China in the 80s that was willing to pursue the set of reforms that were pursued. Uh, and it easily could have been not that way because of the tendency of the Chinese system to purge out dissent before that dissent can get to a point where it can potentially result in a change of policy direction. Uh, so these two systems, which are both not very good at being dynamic, have to both be dynamic at the same time so that they can sit down and talk to each other. So whatever you think about the odds of, you know, even if you think there's relatively decent odds of both the U.S. and China at some point being willing to have some kind of sit down, that has to coincide. If you have an American government that wants to have a negotiation and a Chinese government, which is trying to preserve the status quo, then you can't have a negotiation and vice mm -hmm. versa. So it's a, it's very likely, I think, to be a bit of a two ships passing in the night thing, yeah. or kind of like, you know, when you're in high school and, and you like a, a, a girl uh, and that, you know, then you despair about her ever liking you back. And then she likes you. But by the time she likes you, you, you are thinking about somebody else. Yeah. And then you come back around to her. But by that point, she likes somebody else. And, and the two ships just pass in the night. There is, I think, even if there's a significant chance of the United States and China both recognizing that something needs to change here, there's a significant risk of two ships passing in the night. And if two ships pass in the night, then once you've tried to reach out, and you've tried to do some kind of negotiation, if you get rebuffed, then that contributes to arguments that uh, it, it's inevitably going to be a conflict and you have to get unilateral. So the danger is if you try to do some, something and it doesn't work because the other system is not ready or is not able to do what you need, uh, and we don't really control what the Chinese system is able or ready to do, and they don't really control what we're able and ready to do. Uh, and the, our means of influencing one another are relatively limited. Uh, you know, the Russian government has worked pretty hard to find ways to influence uh, American politics. Uh, the Chinese government tries in its own way, and we try in our own way to influence their politics. We try in our own way to influence Russian politics. Uh, all of these states try to get the politics of, of one another to align, uh, but none of them are very good at it. You know, we can pretty easily tell when somebody is talking about politics like they're not from around here. And uh, the same is true uh, in Russia or in China. Uh, people get accused of being American plants, CIA plants, mm -hmm. just as we accuse people of being Russian plants. Uh, 
you know, we're, we're aware that TikTok is owned by the Chinese. You know, this, this stuff is, uh, you know, it's difficult to get everybody on one page at one time. And a lot of our interventions, instead of about trying to get, say, China or Russia to work with us, are about trying to cause trouble for those regimes about trying to get them overthrown and replaced with liberal democracies. So they're suspicious of our efforts to influence their politics because they think we're out to destroy the, their governments. And to some degree, we are. So they're not entirely, you know, just as they are to some degree out to cause trouble in, in our society and to destabilize our government. Uh, so there's a lot of mistrust. And to have governments in both places that are ready to talk at the same time is unlikely. In the case of Bretton Woods, you had this horrible disaster that destroyed an enormous amount of wealth that destroyed all, you had all of these broken supply chains, broken trade links, because throughout the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, all of this had been disrupted and torn to pieces. And so there was this effort to put it back together. And, it was, and because there needed to be cooperation to put it back together, you get Bretton Woods. But because we haven't torn it all up yet, there are these enormous structural obstacles to reorganizing, because to reorganize, you have to, to some degree, tear up. And since those links have not been ripped, we're talking about, oh, it seems as if they will be ripped if something isn't done. More likely than not, we kick the can, kick the can, kick the can until something happens that causes the links to rip. And only then, once there's been a disaster, can you reconstitute it. But in that case, there's been a disaster. So we failed to avoid the thing that we ought to be trying to avoid. There's one last topic I wanted to talk to you about. And this is something that it's funny. This is something you've talked about pretty much every time we've spoken. I've never asked more about it, but it's the concept of capital mobility. And I'm going to ask it's for the listener. It might puzzle you why I'm asking this question. It'll make sense once we get to the end. Can you talk a little bit about what exactly that is, how it exists today and how it impacts the world? Yeah, so capital mobility is a condition in which it's easy to move money, investment across borders uh, and jobs across borders. So when you have a system with no capital controls, free trade, it's relatively easy to move jobs and investment from country to country. This allows you to avoid tax. It allows you to choose to manufacture in whichever parts of the world give you the most favorable environment for manufacturing, and it creates a structural incentive for states to accommodate, accommodate investors. And if states are continuously accommodating investors and investment, that can produce structural imbalances where you have states that are not consuming because they're constantly favoring the supply side of their economies. So what has happened over the last 50 years is that the United States has become the consumer economy of last resort as all of these other countries try to grow their economies by catering to investor capital, creating favorable environments for investor capital. This forces the United States to take on this consuming role and to consume and consume and consume and consume. And we're reaching a point where for, these, for many of these other economies to continue to grow, they have to find a way to participate in consumption. The capacity of the United States to continuously consume, consume, consume is diminishing because the United States is not growing that fast relative to a lot of these other countries. So its ability to take in and consume everything that nobody else is willing to take in and consume is flagging. Mm -hmm. And so something has to be done to manage these flows of capital in such a way that it becomes possible for other countries to do their fair share of consumption and therefore for the United States to do its fair share of, of uh, production. Mm -hmm. And for that to happen, there has to be some kind of, of renegotiated settlement, some set of rules, right? So in Bretton Woods, the United States doesn't have, uh, you know, has relatively open, open system. But other countries have very strict and fixed rules pegging themselves to the American system. Hmm. Uh, we probably want something that's more inclusive now because the American uh, position is not as overwhelmingly dominant as it was in, say, 1945. To do that, we have to include other states. We have to potentially include non-democratic states. Uh, the European Union potentially has to be included, mm -hmm. and it is internally divided and it has trouble 
participating as a unified bloc in negotiations. This is difficult. But if we're not able to do some kind of negotiation, then we're going to keep going down this path we're on where the thing slowly starts to unravel and we paper over and duct tape over the, you know, the seams. As it starts to come apart, you just slap tape over it yeah, and just keep rolling along. And that, that seems to be what we've been doing. And there was an interesting point made on a recent episode, which is, we talk about the threat to the dollar and we always talk about it from the outside. What if people, and now I have to shut my window, believe it or not, my long guy showed up. He knows my calendar. Hold on. (laughs) So we can hear that dear listener. Enjoy the symphony of sounds. So, you know, we're the, the thing we talked about in the, in the last, in the, in, in a recent episode was, you know, we talk about the threats to the dollars if they're all external. And the point my guest made was, well, I think the first candidate for leaving the dollar-based system of international finance is going to be the U.S. You know, the, you, it, it really seems like the United States holds all the cards and holds all the political advantage. Because I think, to, to your earlier point, uh, there's the, we, we've sort of consumed all we can. And we've taken on all we can, and there seems to be a very uh, there, there's there's a lot of I, I think there's a lot of political will to start to do to start to increase the productive capacity of the U.S. and increase the export capacity of the U.S. Partly because we need to we, we're having we need to bring more of our supply chains in on the continent due to problems caused you know by COVID lockdowns and the pandemic and so on. Uh, and we also, of course, have a very unhappy population that has that, 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 it, how do we put this? We really have a very, I mean, we have a very unhappy population that, uh, has lived through uh, decades of decline and, and they need relief. So I, I, again, I wonder if this restructuring just happens from within and we kind of force everybody else to make tough decisions around that. I think the United States has the greatest interest in revising this, but the United States has an incredibly messed up political system that only in very rare instances is able to come together and play the kind of leadership role that it's necessary to play to lead a unilateral, uh, excuse me, to lead a multilateral change, right? Uh, If you think back to the League of Nations after World War I, the United States was not able to get its political system to commit to the League of Nations. All of these countries are signing up to the League of Nations, and the United States, because of its internal politics, can't be part of this thing, can't do it, can't sign on to it uh, because of its internal politics. It's only in the case of, of the immediate aftermath of World War II that the United States can get itself to actually take on this role. When Richard Nixon rips the whole thing apart, the reason he rips it apart is because of his concern about losing an election, because of his concern about internal division and internal threats to him politically. The United States is so often dictated by its domestic politics, especially because as we've gotten to be so big and so powerful, we don't think about foreign policy threats as as really that substantial or that real, except insofar as you can translate those foreign policy threats into threats to our domestic politics. The the reason that people think of Russia as the threat rather than China is because they think of Russia as having intervened in our domestic politics in a dangerous way. This constant focus in the United States on domestic antagonism makes it very difficult for us to do things which are straightforwardly in the interest of the state. And so the whole economic system for the whole world is kind of on ice until the United States uh, figures itself out. And other countries are not able to move forward in negotiations on climate, in negotiations on changing uh, the, the trade system. They can't move forward on these things until we get our, our stuff together. Uh, you know, we ripped apart the Trans-Pacific Partnership that we'd spent years negotiating with these East Asian states because we got a new president who didn't like it and wanted to pursue a, a stick policy. Uh, and then... Uh, he gets, he gets voted out, and then you have somebody else who comes in who wants to do something else. We don't have any credibility in negotiations with other countries 
because we constantly flip all over the place due to our domestic tensions. So until we get our house in order, we can't play the leadership role that we otherwise have every reason to play. So it's so funny you say that because getting back to why I started this podcast, I'm going to kill these long guys based on, based on the reason or, or getting back to the reason I started this podcast, what I had seen was uh, a political system that had reached peak polarization or what I thought was peak polarization. This was 2018. So it got a whole lot worse. Um, and my conclusion was if we can reform the incentives that politicians seek to get in office or the incentives that guide politicians seeking office, we can change policy outcomes. Based on what you're saying, it sounds like I'm still right after three years in the woods. Ultimately, the domestic political system is, is the thing that's got to move. Now, can it be moved is the question. And so on previous episodes that I've been on, we've talked about the obstacles in the way of the domestic system changing, evolving, the different blocks in the United States that get in the way. There's a similar set of blocks in the Chinese political system, too. There's a similar set of blocks in the European Union, different but similar in function. All of these systems have become so convoluted and so internally divisive that it's difficult for them to come together and take the necessary decisions to prevent what, uh, what we're dealing with. And a lot of the blocks apply also to the strategies that people use to try to unblock the system. A lot of the reforms to procedures that people try to do are themselves blocked by the things that those procedures would change. Because the people who are in office got into office on the existing system and do not have an incentive to change the rules in ways that would favor newcomers. The only reason that people in power change the rules in ways that favor newcomers is if it's their only option, because otherwise they're in danger of the thing collapsing. But when the primary system was created, it was because of the threat to the party duopoly posed by George Wallace in 1968. George Wallace came perilously close to getting enough electoral votes to throw the election to the House where the Southerners would then have the capacity to swing the election in favor of whoever would give them uh, what they wanted on segregation. And because George Wallace posed that threat, the primary system was created to shore up the legitimacy of the nominating process so that people would feel that they had a say in who the Democratic Party and who the Republican Party chose to nominate. And it was only in that situation where George Wallace posed this, this terrible threat that the system was able to change. And so oftentimes to get the system to change, you have to countenance these terrible things. You know, World War II is necessary to get Bretton Woods. A, a competitive election campaign by George Wallace is necessary to get the old system of, of backroom dealings to change. And people are not willing to countenance the threats that are necessary to coerce the elite into accepting sensible reforms. The capacity for reform always depends on the threat of revolutionary change. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review. You can also find additional commentary on this episode and other things going on in the world today by signing up for my email list at ydhty.com slash news. So, Bretton Woods 2.0. Just like I said, if we go back through the past three months of episodes, it's clear that the economic imbalances caused by the U.S. dollar have led to unsustainable consumption and income inequality here in the United States and has also gotten the world hooked on the U.S. as the consumer of last resort, as Ben said. And the political incentives in the U.S. and China are such that there's no politically palatable way to unwind this. China's power structure is dependent on the country being a net exporter, and the U.S. power structure depends on cheap borrowing costs to fund spending without taxes and to fund us being able to buy all the cheap stuff coming over from China. Now, natural forces seem to be unwinding this right now in the form of inflation, 
as the U.S. can't continue to finance its debt or debt-driven spending in an era of rising interest rates. And I will hearken back to what we learned in the February 9th episode with Maya McGinnis, that a 1% increase in interest rates would mean an increase in the U.S. debt service payments equal to the cost of Biden's Build Back Better plan. So the U.S. is going to have to make some hard decisions one way or the other. Now, this will affect China and their power structure, and who knows how that turns out. Will it lead to unrest? Will it lead to more aggressive foreign policy? We don't know. But with any luck, these imbalances will correct themselves without the widespread destruction we saw the last time the monetary order was upended in World War II. Now, our best bet, or the one actionable item we can take here in America is to focus on strengthening democracy so we can weather the storm. And I think the first step, it's going to be no surprise if you listened to this before, is to remove the aspects of our electoral system that cater to the most extreme voices, that being putting an end to the plurality system of elections we have here for something like mixed member proportional representation or ranked choice voting. That out of the way. I do have my own idea as to what a new Bretton Woods would look like, and I will be talking about that in the final episode of this season next week with the Data Monk. Hope you'll join me. As always, music courtesy of Quellertack, YDHTY's producer and editorial advisor and director of Continuous Improvement. Let's not forget that is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios. So here's a little secret. My oldest son can only speak at a volume of 10.